Is your business plan very unclear and you're tirelessly working at a low-paying career? Let's help you get out of the rut and let go of the fear. It's time to excel into the million-dollar stratosphere. Now, here's your host of The Balanced Millionaire, who will take you there, Eileen Mendel. everyone to The Balanced Millionaire. I'm your host, Eileen Mendel, author, consultant, and speaker. And, author, and I have today a great guest with me who is going to be speaking about the state of the future of medicine, as well as issues involving healthcare delivery and longevity, how to keep ourselves from declining as we age and to live longer lives. His name is Dr. Stephen C. Schimpf. Dr. Schimpf is an MD, MACP. He also is a volunteer as an Eagle Scout. And right now he is quasi-retired, but if you ask me, he's still very, very active and doing many things that most of us uh, probably uh, would say, wow, you know, as you get older, we, we tone ourselves down. But Dr. Schimpf is extremely active. He's written several books. He's a, pro he was a, pro he's a professor of medicine and public policy, a former CEO of the University of Maryland Medical Center, and author. He just is a prolific author because he's already written a few books, uh, one of them called Fixing the Primary Care Crisis, the other one, Longevity Decoded, The 70 Keys to Healthy Aging. Dr. Shemp graduated from Yale Medical School, and he also did his internal medicine residency there and has a board certification in internal medicine, medical oncology, and infectious diseases. So, Dr. Schiff, welcome to our show. You can tell the audience more about your books and the exciting things you're doing and help us muddle our way through the medical system. It's really um, getting to a point now where people are just getting fed up with healthcare and the medicine and delivery and getting the appropriate care they need and taking it into their own hands. So tell us more about your um, involvement with the current healthcare system and your studies and some of the things that we can learn from you from the fact that um, you've been in the medical world for so long and you could see these changes happening. Okay, well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to participate. I'm delighted to do so. Oh, you're welcome. And, uh, thank you also for that very nice introduction. My mother would be very proud. <laughs> and I, and I, will, I gotta put a plug in. You mentioned that I was an Eagle Scout, and but the big event in our lives right now is that our older grandson just became an Eagle Scout last weekend. So we're very proud of him yes, uh, coming along. And his younger brother is making his way in that direction as fast as he can. Well, so your basic question, yeah, we have a screwed up medical system. And I'm going to start with a paradox, just by the way you introduced me. 
the paradox is this. If you think about it, we're a country which is, has, has the benefit of very well-trained, educated uh, doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, and so on. We have an incredible pharmaceutical industry that comes out with, you know, really great drugs and biotechnology the same. Um, the diagnostics industry, the, the, um, uh, the medical device industry, you know, things like stents and pacemakers and so on. Uh, so all this is so, so incredible. And yet, the, the, here's the paradox. The other side, the other, on the other hand part, is that we don't deliver medical care the way we could or should. And we all know that. Because, first of all, it takes usually an average of 22 days to get an appointment with your doctor. Uh, when you get there, um, you have to wait in the waiting room. That's why it's called a waiting room. And then when you see the doctor, you get about 10 to 12 minutes. It's not enough time. For, we'll come back to this. not enough time for a lot of things. And I'm then, just smiling and checking my head. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then you're out the door, except if somebody stops you and says, well, by the way, here's your, here's your copay. Uh, you want to give me your credit card. So, um, so as patients, we're frustrated. I can tell you the doctors are frustrated too. Uh, and, and then we also know that uh, we pay a lot for insurance, and that keeps going up every year. It's an amazing amount, whether we have good insurance or even lousy insurance. It's still an awful lot. So that's my paradox, that, that, we, that our delivery system, well, it stinks compared to what we have available, which should be fantastic. And there's one other issue too, is that we spend most of our healthcare dollars, when I say we, I mean just as a country, and we spend most of our healthcare dollars on treating disease. We spend very little on trying to prevent disease and maintain wellness. We can talk about that more later. So, okay, so here's this mess. Where would you start? Uh, my preference is not to start with insurance directly, like politicians do, um, but instead start with primary care. And the reason I say that is that's where it all starts with us as patients. We start with the primary care physician, and yet primary care is in this incredible crisis. And as a result, you and I and everybody else, pretty much everybody, is not getting the level of care that we could or should um, because of this crisis. So I'll just stop there for a second. I'll continue on. I mean, I'll just keep talking, of course, but I want to give you a chance. <laughs> well, okay. So the way, the way it has been done for many, many years is we go through, like you said, the primary care physician, and the primary care physician is supposed to be triaging us to the specialists as needed. Um, and basically, there's a backup of so many people trying to get appointments, et cetera, per year. You know, everyone who wants to get a physical at least once a year and have contact with their primary care physician, if not, you know, more than that, if they have, you know, flu and everything else or need to, you know, come in for something else uh, to be seen. Um is there enough primary care physicians out there? Are we graduating enough care uh, primary care physicians who can handle that load? And in addition, um, once um, they have, you know, diagnosed the patient, can they handle more tests and things and do more than they've been doing in the past rather than, um, you know, triaging over to a specialist? 
you know, so yeah, so you've got, you've got at least three or four questions in there. So let me see if I can go through them one by one. Okay. So the first, the first one is, you didn't ask it exactly this way, but, you know, what should primary care be? And to me, primary care is the beginning, the, the, you know, the base of the pyramid, if you like, where we should be able to go and get really most of our care, 85, 95 percent. Good primary care physicians, and most are, uh, vast majority are, they can take care of a lot more than they do. So let me try and explain what I mean. It turns out that right now, the most visits to the primary care physician or nurse practitioner are about uh, 8 to 12 minutes. Well, 8 to 12 minutes is enough time to take care of something relatively straightforward. For example, if I come into the doctor's office and say, I've got a headache and I've got this uh, and, I fe- and I've got a, a fever and I've got this circular rash on my chest. And oh, by the way, I knocked the tick off there a couple of days ago. That's an easy one. OK, you have Lyme disease and here's the antibiotic for it. And take it for two weeks. And be sure you take it. And uh, out you go. And by the way, if uh, if you don't feel better within 24 hours, call me back. So so that's easy. Um, but most times when you go to the doctor, it's not that easy or so many times. It's especially true for someone who's older and 10 to 12 minutes just isn't enough for somebody who has a little bit of hard of hearing, a little visual problem, maybe some mobility problems, and maybe has two or three, four chronic diseases and is on you know a whole bunch of prescription medications, which is the, which is the case for many, many people. You can't take care of a new problem in that situation in 10 to 12 minutes. So what happens is even though that primary care doctor could have taken care of that patient if they had more time, they say, I don't have time. I'm going to send you to the cardiologist or the gastroenterologist or whoever. And that's, I'm not knocking the cardiologist or the gastroenterologist, but that just hits the cash register sign and up it goes. Or the other thing that happens is prescriptions are given out uh, when lifestyle changes could suffice, but it takes time to go through lifestyle changes with a patient. It's much easier to write a prescription. So, for example, somebody comes in and has reflux, acid reflux. It's easy to write a prescription for an acid suppressor. It takes a lot more time, not that much time, but more time to say, well, look, let's fix your diet a little bit, less coffee, less caffeine. Uh, let's put the head of your bed up uh, three inches so the acid runs downhill, not uphill while you're sleeping. Uh, don't go to bed for three hours until after dinner so that your food's digested and everything's out of your stomach. You know, a number of things like that. Uh, but that takes some time. So quick, easy thing is here's the prescription. Uh, so that happens a lot. So we got the, the prescriptions when lifestyles could do the job. Uh, referrals to specialists when the primary care doctor could have taken care of it. And then there's the other issue that maybe 40% of patients, when they come in with a problem, that problem has a, a background in anxiety. And if you're going to deal with that, it takes time. You have to be able to pick it up as, as a physician, to talk to the patient, probably have them come back again another couple of times. All of this takes time. So the key word that I've used over and over again here is time. And that gets us to uh, another part of your question, which is, well, why don't doctors have time? And the answer is that because of insurance, 
insurance only pays so much for primary care. But meanwhile, overhead costs have been going up and up and up and up. And we could get into why, but that's another story. Uh, just take my word for it for the moment. The overheads are going up, but reimbursements are not. So it's the old story. I'll make it up in volume. Well, how can I make it up in volume? Well, I can stop going to the hospital and seeing patients in the hospital. Let the hospitals do that. I can stop going to the ER to see my patients in the ER. Let the ER doc do that. And now I just save some time. You know, that, that time in the morning when I would have gone to the hospital, I can see a couple more patients then. And then, okay, but that's still not enough. So I'm going to start cutting back on the time with each patient. And so now today, um, and the average primary care doc sees maybe 24, maybe even more patients a day. And if, if assume an eight-hour day, that's three patients an hour. That's 20 minutes a, a patient. But it's not because it has to be time to go to the bathroom, answer the phone, um, uh, check your laboratory date, et cetera, et cetera. And so it boils down to that the patient gets, like I said before, only eight to 12 minutes. And again, it's okay for some things. But it's not okay for a lot. Now, so I was going to mention when I myself go to teaching hospitals mm -hmm. um, or even um, clinics, you know, just uh, clinics that are outside of the uh, teaching hospital. A lot of times, a um, a PA or um, a, a medical um, um, uh, resident will take the notes, and then the doctor will come in for a few minutes to discuss. You know what the they they'll do the all the notate but so they what they do is they have the ju more junior people take the information and then the, the doctor reviews that with the junior persons in the room. Is that a shortcut or is that actually also driving costs up? I mean, what, is it a benefit or or, or not? In the end, it's a benefit because it's the process of teaching the next generation of healthcare providers. So that's good, and. Um, as long as that, uh, we call them the attending physician, the senior physician, uh, also knows when to ask additional questions, and they should ask additional questions to be sure it's all been sorted out properly and uh, that the, the examination was, was satisfactory. But I'm really referring more to the physician who's in private practice in your community, okay. the one that we go to. and. Again, they're all trained. And by the way, I'm not a primary care doc. You said that when you introduced me. But they're all trained really well to take care of all sorts of problems. Heart failure, uh, major uh, lung diseases, diabetes, high blood pressure. You know, you go down the list. Uh, of course, there's things they have to refer to specialists. But often, more often than not, they can take care of it, but not in, not in 10 minutes. So the patient gets referred. And if I can tell you a quick story, that be okay? Sure. Well, I got into this because we were having lunch with some friends one day. And the, the woman said, a uh, friend said, do you know such and such a neurologist? And I said, no, I don't. And, and she said, oh. And I said, well, why'd you ask? She said, well, I was hopeful. She said, I need, I need to see him. And he can't see me for about two months. And I thought maybe if you knew him, you could call and see if I could get a, an earlier appointment. I smiled and said, no, I don't know him. And, and I'm impressed that you thought I actually could do that. Uh, but, um, but 
tell me why you're going to see him. I could, I couldn't resist. You know? So she told me the story. Uh, sometime before she'd started getting this strange sensation that kind of ran from up by her, uh, uh, her, her, um, clavicle, <laughs> collarbone, uh, down across her chest on the right-hand side, just under the skin a bit, and down all the way across, and then down into her abdomen a little bit. And it was a strange sensation. Sometimes it felt a little electrical. Sometimes it, just, it was just kind of strange, vibra- vibration sort of thing. She didn't think much of it in the beginning, but it would come and go. And, and after a while, particularly at nighttime, 4 o'clock in the morning, she started to get worried. She thought, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's my heart. So I better go to the doctor. So she was at the time, I think about 66. So she goes to the doctor and, uh, and he does, was he, yes, was he, um, uh, does a little history, a little physical exam, doesn't like your cardiogram and he doesn't find anything. Everything's normal. So here is the point, uh, the, the cross, the, the diversion in the road. There were two ways he could go. And he picked the way of sending her to the cardiologist. And he said to her, listen, I don't find anything, but I know you're worried about your heart. So just to be sure, let's have you see the cardiologist. So off she goes to the cardiologist. And he does a history and exam. And he says, I don't find anything. And the electrocardiogram is normal. But just to be sure, let's do an echocardiogram and let's do a stress test. So you can hear the cash register again. So he does those. And guess what? They're negative. But she still has the sensation. He said, you know, it goes down to your abdomen. Let's have you see a gastroenterologist. So the gastroenterologist, you know, I could keep going. Uh, but <laughs> gastroenterologist does all sorts of things, including an endoscopy. And then finally, does can't find anything. So finally, does a CAT scan of her abdomen, which is perfectly normal for her stomach and, 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 and everything, excepting that the radiologist in, sees in her uterus a small cystic sort of thing that's about the size of the, oh, the tip of your little finger. And he says, it looks like just a benign cyst, but now he's got, he wants to be cautious, of course. So he says, but just to be sure, you probably should see a gynecologist. Okay. Uh, she goes to the gynecologist. The gynecologist looks at the films and says, oh, I think it's just a cyst, but, you know, just to be sure, why don't we take it out? We can do it. Uh, you know, in, in and out the same day, and you'll be fizz, fiddle in a couple of days. So, of course, her anxiety is off the wall until it gets done. And then um, the, uh, the specimen goes to the laboratory, and the pathologist at the local hospital is uncertain about it. So he sends it off to the academic medical center. And so now she's really going crazy. Anyway, the word comes back, it's just a cyst. Phew. Okay. <sighs> but she still has the sensation. So the gynecologist says, you know, it sounds like a nerve thing. Let's have you see the neurologist, which gets us back to the beginning of my story. <laughs> so she basically had to run around to every session. Yeah. So she sees the neurologist who says, he kind of smiles. And he says, you know, freshman year in medical school, we learn in anatomy that in the chest, nerves run from the, from the spine, from the spinal cord, around between the ribs. In other words, horizontally, if you will. This is a sensation going north and south, up and down your chest. It can't be a nerve. <laughs> There's no nerve that goes that way. <laughs> uh, I was uh, having breakfast, it turns out, a few weeks later with a, 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 a really good primary care friend of mine. And I said, I want to tell you a story. So I told him, just the beginning. And I said, now, just the beginning. You know, in other words, what the primary care physician had found or not found really 
And I said, if, in that situation, what would you have done? He looked at me with a smile and said, okay, I can tell from the way you started the story, she got a million dollar workup. I said, yes, it turns out it was like around uh, 18,000 actually. Um, he said, well, I would have known her. I would have known that she presumably had normal blood pressure, normal cholesterol. Uh, I would have known from, I would have known about her personal history or family history and so on. And so I would have been comfortable in saying, uh, I don't know what the sensation is, but everything is normal. Whatever it is, it's certainly not going to be a problem other than it annoys you. And it's not your heart. He said, but you know, when someone has a sensation like that, it usually says that their body, mind interaction is, is crying out for some attention, that there's something that needs to be looked into, resolved. He said, so... If I didn't have enough time right then, I would have had her come back in a couple of days when we could have had at least a half hour, 45 minutes. He said, I would have wanted to get down into what were the real issues way back in there? What's the problem? As he said that, <laughs> I happened, I knew what the answer was because I, I, I know this couple and I knew that there was an issue that they were working through, not not between themselves, but just a, 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 a serious issue with a family member. And that's what she was so stressed about. But no one had listened to her. You know, they, they just said, oh, funny sensation. Let's go to another doctor, another and another and another. And as I said, $18,000. Insurance paid for most of it. That's great. But, you know, she wasn't getting the care she really needed. Right. And that's my whole point about the 10-minute visit. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So what could have been causing the problem? Could it have been something related to the stresses of what she was dealing with? Exactly. Rather than an actual organ problem. Right. And so meanwhile, she got all worked up. She got the whole workup. Uh-huh. <laughs> Astronaut or something would be getting when she had no real organ issues right. to cure. Right. Say, oh, great. So now she knows that her heart and her, and her GI tract and her uterus and everything is great. Yes. <laughs> but she didn't need to know that. <laughs> exactly. And she went through, to put it bluntly, hell and a lot of stress getting to that point. Right. Because of the uncertainty, you know, whether it was actually serious or it would go away on its own. She, you know, she had no clue. But so, so the doctors were making her think it could be the worst you know, uh, something that was really on the negative side when it actually was not. And and so it, it created, like you said, the frustration and anxiety for the patient, but also the doctors ended up working her up for something that they couldn't even find. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I think this happens more than once, though. I mean, this is just like um, a, story, a story you happen to run into, but it's probably been going on and you know, so many other places as well. Oh, yeah, I, I can tell you, you know, this got me sort of into this, but I can tell you a dozen of these stories, uh, probably more if I thought about it for a while, because it's, it's just a common problem. Uh, a related problem is that because the primary care doctor doesn't have enough time, they also don't, um, I call it coordinate or quarterback care. So let's say somebody does need some, let's just make something up. Somebody with diabetes who really does need to see the ophthalmologist 
and does need to see the endocrinologist and does need to see, I don't know, uh, the podiatrist. Okay. The three of them don't talk to each other. Presumably they do talk maybe with the primary care doc, but they probably don't actually talk to him or her. So, but so somebody has to be interacting with those three physicians and say, and, and, and then deciding what, what works, what doesn't work. Cause there may be, for example, a, a drug drug interaction, you know, the, one, one doc gives one drug, another doc gives another drug, but maybe those two drugs shouldn't be used together and so on. Uh, somebody has to do that coordination. And all too frequently, that's not happening. And again, it's a time issue. It's just a time issue. So in the end, you know, the patient will get the toxic side effects and then have to go to the hospital or urgent care because they, they, the two drugs were probably not meant to be taken you know, at the same time or together. So that's creating even more problems. I'll tell you, I, I, I can't resist. I'll tell you another story. So <laughs> a friend of my wife's um, was telling her about um, a problem she had that she, she couldn't taste anything. And somehow um, uh, my wife said, well, you can call my husband and see if he can, you know, give a suggestion of who to see or whatever. So here was the story very briefly. Uh, she was seeing a gazillion doctors for different things, and she, after a while, had gotten her, she couldn't she couldn't uh, taste anything. So she went to her primary care doc, who said, "I don't know, that's strange. <laughs> I'm going to send you to a ear, nose, and throat doc." Well, the ear, nose, and throat doctor couldn't figure it out, and um, he said, you, "You see a psychiatrist. Uh, why don't you check with a psychiatrist to see if he has any." Suggestions. So she does that too, and psychiatrist has no idea why she why she uh, uh, can't taste anything. And she saw somebody else, and I forgot who that was. So it sure sounded, you know, people don't lose their taste all of a sudden. So I said, "Well, tell me what medicine you're taking." And she was on, as I recall, eight or nine medicines. Now remember, I'm retired, and, uh, and I, so I'm not up to date on all, all different medications, but I wrote them all down. I looked them all up. And when I did, I found that one of them was the drug that the psychiatrist had given her. Not, not commonly, but does cause loss of, loss of taste. So I called the head of pharmacy at the University of Maryland Medical Center. And he said, yeah, I don't know about that. He said, but just so happens that our psychiatry pharmacist is right here. She, she comes on the line. She says, oh, yeah, we see that a few times a year. I just stop the drug and, and her taste will come back in about a week. Well, I wasn't going to stop her drug. But I was able to tell her what the problem was. And she went back to the psychiatrist who, who made a switch. But the problem is, again, nobody took the time. It took me 45 minutes. And that's me who doesn't these drugs. Uh, <laughs> but somebody should have done that. <laughs> kind of like did. Being, um, having a medical, uh, scientific and medical background myself, um, I, uh, I was a, a graduate student in pharmacology for a couple of years, yes. majoring in biology. So what I do is I always look up the drug, you know, for the benefit of uh, myself, just look it up in all the side effects on Google. 
um, and as many uh, sites as in medical sites as I can find. And I also read also what the pharmacist has in the packaging. Um, so I'm already aware, and I think patients need to do that. They need to take be proactive and be all already aware of the side effects of the various drugs they're taking. Yeah. But you're right. So, so you do it yourself, but of course you have a background right. that makes it easier for you to do it. But most people don't. Although I think with, with Google, like you said, more and more people are doing that. But, you know, somebody loses the taste of their, in their you know, they, they lose their sense of taste. Would they think, oh, maybe it's one of the drugs I'm taking? Yeah, you might. <laughs> um, and you would because, again, of a background thing, but many people would not. Right. So, you know, my, my major point is you can tell. The, uh, the doctors probably should warn the patients, you know, make sure you review, you know, all the, the packaging material. And you could even look up the side effects. If you do have any of these, get in touch with me so we could switch, you know, because there's always another substitute for this drug, you know, whatever. We could switch you over to something else. But so, they, have time to <laughs> they skip that step because there's no time. Yeah. So, you know, my major point, though, is just what you said, no time. And so the primary care physician needs time. Uh, the insurance companies aren't going to pay them more. Uh, so they, you have to go a different route uh, and, and find a way that uh, primary care docs can take care of fewer patients, but take more care of those fewer patients each. So do you think there should be a limitation then on the number of patients max that any doctor should be seeing per day so that they can actually have more time with the patient as well as with their records to, you know, make sure that they're doing, you know, the best that they can do for that patient? The answer is yes. So um, instead of 24 patients a day, something more like 10 to 12 would probably be more reasonable. And... Um, And if you have, if the doctor has a practice which is largely older people, older people tend to have more chronic diseases or on more medications, they take more time. Maybe that five, that the number per day should be even less because they need more time. So the average primary care doc right now has about 2,500 patients that they're taking care of. And it depends, but that should come down to maybe 800 would be a good number. Wow, that's significant. It's a big drop. Uh, even less, again, though, if it's mostly an older age population. But so 700, 800 would be pretty good. And that means you're going to see many fewer patients per day. And each patient's going to get a lot more time, a lot more attention. And the care goes up. Now, that means that primary care will cost more, right? Somebody's going to say, well, that's going to cost more. Yes, it does, because somebody's got to make up the difference. So the primary care will cost more, but the care is so much better, uh, and there's so much, so many fewer prescriptions written, tests done, referrals to the, to the specialists, and many fewer trips to the emergency room and fewer hospitalizations. This has been really well shown. So, um, you know, it more, many, many more, many more times makes up for the increased cost of primary care, which inherently isn't that much. But 
Well, we're going to take a brief break and then come right back to continue our conversation about the healthcare system and the future of healthcare. And also, we'll discuss um, some tips for uh, aging um, more uh, um, healthfully and proactively so that you can live a longer life. My business has lost its upward momentum. I'm working up to 14 hours a day, but my sales seem to have plateaued. I'm so overwhelmed. I used to have that same problem, but ever since I found the Balanced Millionaire Consulting Firm, our sales and profits have risen sharply. Even our staff is more engaged, and the atmosphere is full of energy. I have no time to work on my business to develop new sales and marketing strategies. I would love to expand, have strategic partnerships, and access to financing. You can do all of that and more. The Balanced Millionaire Consulting Team advises you on streamlining your operations, establishing alliances, and most importantly, increasing your revenues and profits. Let us help you build value and reduce stress in your business. Take charge. Don't let your business control your life. Visit thebalancedmillionaire.com or call 442-224-0160 for a free consultation. That's 442-224-0160 or thebalancedmillionaire.com. Okay, we're back from our break. Welcome back, everybody. This is Eileen Mendel, host of The Balanced Millionaire, and I'm talking to my guest, Dr. Stephen Schimpf, and we're discussing uh, the future of the healthcare system and also how we can live longer lives so that we can live um, into our 80s, 90s, and maybe well beyond. There's a lot of people who, who are centenarians out there. So Dr. Schimpf, um, what are you saying is going to happen now that we're aware? I mean, you, you're probably um, one of the people that um, people look up to as far as uh, leading the way for um, ideas for the for the healthcare delivery system in the future. What is going to happen? Is it going to start at uh, the government level, um, or is it going to start at, at more of the state level? What's going to happen to make healthcare more efficient and better for you know our um, mortality or immortality, um, you know, for the um, patient as well as for doctors. So again, I'll go back to primary care. So it's not a federal or a, a state issue so much. I think it's going to start at the, at the grassroots. I think uh, doctors are saying, hey, this just isn't working. I got to do something else. And patients are saying, hey, I'm not getting the care I need to get. So you got to do something else. So what are the answers? Well, there's many, but the one that, uh, that I'll just describe quickly is called direct primary care or retainer-based care. And the idea there is that in uh, the, the doctor says, look, I'm not going to take insurance anymore. Primary care isn't that expensive anyway. And I want you to simply pay me uh, directly so that you're my customer, if you will. And, and I'm here to take care of you without an insurance middleman. Uh, so you pay me. I will reduce my practice to whatever number, let's say 700 patients. And I will, I will guarantee you, guarantee it. You know, this is what you get in return. Um, I'm, we're gonna, you'll be able to see me if you call up. You can see me today, or certainly by tomorrow. You'll have as much time with me as we both feel is necessary. I'm gonna give you my personal cell phone. Listen to this, uh, my personal cell phone. You can call me 24/7, seven days a week. 
And if you want to send me a message by email, that's fine, or by text, that's fine. And I'm going to spend a really, you know, a, a lot of time on that annual exam you were talking about before. And we're going to spend really a lot of focus on prevention of disease, on wellness preservation, and of course, on taking care of any medical problems. So uh, what's that cost? Well, it varies. Uh, and it really depends upon how many patients the doctor chooses to have. If it's 700 or 800 patients, then the cost per patient is going to be less. If it's 400 or 500, the cost per patient will be more. Um, but there are many direct primary care physicians that charge like $750 a year in that neighborhood. And you get what I just said. So it, it is, in my opinion, a, uh, a very good uh, value. I think that's the best word for it, good value. And I think given the... Uh, your, your business and your show, uh, one of the best ways to uh, uh, save your money is to spend money the right way, wisely. <laughs> um, and to spend money on direct primary care, in my opinion, is money well spent. So just to say it, my wife and I both have direct primary care physicians. Uh, we, use, we happen to go to different ones, um, and we think it's money well spent. I think I, w I would agree with you. Well, other than getting the runaround with the story that you told us about the, all the anxiety and frustration, I would rather have had the, the primary physician spend more time with me so I wouldn't have to go to like five different specialists to find out nothing was wrong with me or they couldn't figure it out. <laughs> I don't want to like, you know, spend the $750 per year to have an in-depth um, analysis of my situation that avoids any kind of um, unnecessary tests, especially x-rays and you know, MRIs and you know things where you have to clean out your bowel and all this. <laughs> it's not, it's not right. good for the patient and it's not right. good you know, use of our of the, of the money. You know, it's like it's a, you know, it's wasteful in every res single respect you could think of. So I think to ask a family um, you know, to spend, you know, for each of their, um, you know, maybe they can have a, a plan for families and a plan for individuals sure. to yeah. spend a little bit more to get the right care. I think it's worth it. I certainly do. And as I said, you know, my wife and I both uh, have, if you will, put our money where our mouth is and, uh, and we feel we're getting much better care as a result. Sure. And by, by the way, our two doctors, um, feel mine for example after, after you've been doing this for a couple of years i said to us well how's it going he said well you know i'm spending just as much time as i always did he said you that uh he said i guess that's just me he said but you know i go home at night and i feel good because i know i've given really good care and my wife's doctor told me more or less the same thing and she said you know now i feel like i'm the doctor i i always wanted to be i think i think that's a good a testament, a testament to the direct physician um, model. Now, how, how does the um, person who's not really uh, aware or, or aware of what's available in their community, how do they find those doctors that want to um, deliver more time and share 
where there might be uh, extra fee. Uh, you know, where, how do you how do you identify them? Are there are there? Yeah, is, well, yes, <laughs> you said before it's called Google. Uh, <laughs> and go to Google and put in direct primary care. There is a, a website, and I can't remember the name of it. Uh, but a, another good place to go is uh, conciergemedicine.com. Conciergemedicine.com. And uh, they keep a pretty good, uh, um, what do I call it, uh, directory. Uh, and, they, and they have some, uh, some other places to send you to look things up. So it's, it's not too hard to find. Well, that was very helpful information. Um, the, other, the other thing that you have been investigating is how one can live a more quality uh, life as they age and increase their longevity and add healthy years to their life. So can you, um, I know we don't have a whole lot of time left, but um, if, you can, if you can kind of outline what that would be, what are some of the tips that you can give to our listeners about that? Sure. Um, I think I would start by just saying that when we're in our 20s and 30s, much to most of your listeners' surprise, we start to lose about 1% of all our body functions per year. Well, 1% we don't notice. Uh, and But if you think about it, I'm 78, so that's 58 years since I was 20. So if I've been losing 1% each year, I've lost a lot of function. And everybody does. So we have a lot of uh, uh, redundancy in all of our systems. So uh, even though you lose that much, we still have a lot of reserve often. But... Down it goes. We're not going to live forever. So the question is, can we slow that rate of decline? And the answer is yes. And you do it by lifestyle changes. And it's all pretty straightforward. Nothing that I'm going to say is should be a surprise to anybody. It, it has to do with eating a, a good diet, healthy diet, getting some exercise, maintaining uh, or getting good sleep at night, keeping your stress level down avoiding substance abuse like tobacco. And then, in addition, for our brains, we also need uh, intellectual challenges. You know, it's the old thing about use it or lose it. And uh, humans all need social interaction. So those seven, that's what I call the seven keys, we got to work on those. And the ones that are hardest for most people are diet and exercise and probably stress, actually. And I understand that. I understand why. But if I were to tell you that you could change the slope of that line going down instead of 1%, let's say you could change it to 0.75%. Doesn't sound like a lot, but over a long time, that adds up. And to convert it into a, a term that relates to uh, uh, what your whole programs are about, I'm sure you tell young people, start saving now and start investing because it, you, you, it takes a lot less if you do it now than if you try and catch up later, because you'll you'll it's you know the compounding concept. And it's exactly yeah. the same thing here. Uh, it, it'll compound uh, by slowing down that rate of aging. Again, we're not going to we're not going to live forever, but it'll slow it down. And in doing so, uh, you also prevent a lot of the chronic diseases that are the most problematic heart disease, cancer, uh, diabetes, some of the neurodegenerative diseases, 
all of these have a relationship to uh, to our lifestyles. Ah, but you know what? I love those chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I you think know, so, everybody has a sinful thing that they, you know, they crave, and you know, it's hard, especially as you get older. You have to give yourself a little more leeway. It's like, okay, you know, I shouldn't be eating that piece of chocolate cake or the, the cookies, but you know, I'm already, you know, let's say in my 60s, 70s, and is it going to really uh, have an impact, you know, longer term on me? I think once in a while it shouldn't. Or what, what's your uh, what's your feelings on that and thoughts on that? I think the word is all things in moderation. <laughs> yes, yes, I agree with that. So uh, on a minimum, how much exercise should an older adult, say somebody in their 40s, 50s and older, be getting per day? Well, I think the simple answer is you want to get a half an hour of something equivalent to walking in each day. So walking will do it. You don't have to jog. You don't have to cycle. Not that that's nothing wrong with that, but just, just getting out and moving. Uh, you know, a brisk walk, not, not lollygagging, but a brisk walk for half an hour a day, every day. Okay, you want to take one day off? That's okay. Um, and then the second thing is you need some resistance exercises. And resistance meaning weights. Uh, but you can do a lot of things at home. You know, push-ups, sit-ups, uh, the plank, um, squats. Those are all good. You can do those right at home. Uh, but for most of this, we probably should get to some kind of gym and use some regular weights. And then the third thing is, as we get older, it's a good idea to get some do some balance exercises because our balance tends to start to slide also. Now, um, some of the um, elderly people are actually um, doing a lot better than the past generations because of what's available on the web and um, information, more and more information on connecting uh, to um, what's healthy for seniors than, than we used to have, you know, because it's all available on the internet. Um, is there a particular site um, that um, some of us can go to that uh, will help us to, you know, keep ourselves, you know, in tip-top shape that we can kind of gauge how we, the progress we're making or anything that you can suggest? I know people wear Fitbit fit watches or whatever, but I don't know if those actually work. Well, uh, what do you is, suggest? Is, is, is it okay if I do a little marketing here for a second? Yes, yes, yes. Tell us more about, you know, if you have something to offer. If you go to Amazon and put Put in the word seven keys to healthy aging you'll come up with my book or write in longevity decoded and um the answers to your questions are in there and you know yes there are other places you can go to get the answers but that's one place and since i happen to have written it and i know it's pretty good <laughs> i'll i will stand up for it right now so again it's longevity decoded dash the seven keys to healthy aging um so that's that's something you can consider and I know you're also doing a TV. Sh you're doing a TV show or uh, some um, TV that. Um, how do we? One. How does one access the medical uh, shows that maybe are they on Roku or? How do we uh, access those? Well, I, I do it. We live in a retirement community of about two thousand people, and we have closed circuit TV, and so 
uh, we have our own TV studio here, and there's one channel that's used for it. So I do, a, a, with a retired public health nurse, I do a health and wellness and medical show each week for about a half an hour. And so that's internal, but I've taken a good number of them, not all of them, but some of them, and uh, redone them as you know 10 to 12-minute videos. And they're on YouTube. And the way to find that is to look up my name, Stephen Schimpf. Okay. So on YouTube, Stephen Schimpf, and people can watch some of the... Um, uh, yeah, so there's, there's, there's a set in there about primary care, and there's a set in there about um, longevity decoded. Okay. And um, are you um, also um, out there speaking to uh, the public about some of these things, or giving talks up um, to... Uh, um, in conferences or anything anymore? Or do that? Not not too often uh, because I don't like to travel anymore. Uh, so I do things like this, you know, over the over the airwaves, uh, and that I find that satisfying. Uh, and I do some conferences too, but mostly just nearby. Now, is your work based on all the patients that you've seen over the years? Or are you looking at some of the other paper? medical papers and other uh, works that are being done. I know there's a, a few other doctors that I've interviewed that um, have um, said that they're also changing their practices and, um, you know, looking at, you know, lifestyle changes, et cetera, uh, rather than relying on medicine. So do you uh, get together or, or read some of the other? Uh, oh, my, yes. yes, that's very important. So, yes, I obviously use my own personal background as a, as a base, and I try and keep up to date, but, you know, medicine is so broad, it's not possible to keep up with everything, so I pick it little areas, if you will, broad areas, actually, uh, like this whole longevity issue, and I put about three years' worth of uh, research into it before I wrote that book, and the same thing for primary care. Again, I'm not a primary care physician, but I have a lot of friends, and uh, I did a lot of research there as well, two or three years' worth, and uh, and then was able to put that together. So it's a, and, and by the way, remember I said that intellectual challenges are good for older people. I'm 78 and I want to keep my brain working. So these sorts of, th this type of work, if you want to call it work, um, is, is frankly, it's healthy. It's, it's good for my brain to do it. And, uh, can you comment on diet? Um, you know, a lot of people are on the keto diet or, you know, what's a healthy, these days, like the definition of a healthy diet. I mean, because um, I know there's organic and then there's the, um, uh, I, I listened to a webinar recently saying um, more of our diets should be plant-based because uh, plant-based uh, diets People tend to live longer, um, not completely plant-based, but more plant, more uh, vegetables and greens and things in our diets versus eating more meat. Um, so can you comment on um, some tips for the diet to stay healthy? Sure. So um, I would start by saying, uh, again, using Google, you can look up the Mediterranean diet, Mediterranean diet. And if you do, you'll see a, a, a pyramid. And the base of the pyramid is vegetables. Big piece of the pyramid is vegetables. And, and I know we're all taught, we always got to eat your vegetables. Well, it's true. We need every day to eat a wide variety of, of different types of vegetables, different colors, 
so on. We also need some fruit. And then down at the bottom of the pyramid are also things like nuts and seeds and beans, avocados, olives, olive oil. That's, that's sort of the basis for uh, everything. Next up, a little bit less, is going to be fish because we know that we need that it's a good protein, first of all, but it also has those omega-3 fatty acids. And then we work our way up so that we get toward the top. It's much less um, those are meats, um, you know, poultry and then beef. And then at the very, very, very top, just a teeny little thing is sugar. Now, if you look at the American diet today, most people eat an enormous amount of sugar. They don't know it because it's it's um, it's written up in lots of different ways. Uh, so it's uh, uh, you, you know about the high fructose corn syrup. And yes. that's just everything. All the it's not just junk foods, it's in everything. It's in cereals, it's wherever you go, it's there. So we eat you know, pies, cakes, pasta, not pasta, but pies and cakes and and, and pastries and candy and soda particularly. It's just full of high fructose corn syrup. So anyway, we, we eat a lot of, of sugar when we should be eating a very little bit of sugar. And the other thing to be aware of is that everything that's made out of white flour, when flour, when it's digested, turns into sugar. And so eating a uh, eating a, a loaf of uh, a, yeah a, a slice of bread is not that it's bad for you, but it will digest the sugar. So the total amount of sugar that we eat is pretty astronomical. So we shouldn't. So my but my real point is all things in moderation, but when you look at your plate, your plate should be two-thirds vegetables and one-third protein. Right. Well, that's interesting because in the American diet, the diet that I grew up with as a child, and a lot of people are still using, is the um, meat is the main um, course or the main, main part of the plate, and then the vegetables are sides. That's right. vegetable and there's a, a starch usually on the side. That's right. And, and, that's, <laughs> and that's that's the unhealthy diet, that is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's the main portion. It's, it's um, too much protein, not enough vegetable. So we we don't need as much protein as people pre previously thought um, to be healthy. Because the vegetables yeah. would only have a yeah. certain amount. Uh, we don't need we don't need what we would consider to be, you know, like a nice big steak or something or a big hamburger. That's a little, you know, we've been eating too much protein, too much meat protein. Yeah, right. Protein's good for us, but go back and find another piece of fish. <laughs> right. Fish or some vegetables. Yeah, some vegetables contain protein as well. So um, it's basically reteaching even from the elementary school level on a you know what a proper healthy diet should be. I mean, shouldn't we should not define this out when we're when we're already in our forties, fifties, sixties? What a healthy diet should look like. No, well, you know, and I think everybody knows it. Just that we have what we like, and we tend to fall back on that. But if you really want to change the slope of that curve, of that line, if you really want to live a longer time, if you really want to prevent some of those diseases. Uh, Make the change now. I like to say that we each have the power to do it. So it's like flipping a light switch. 
you can flip that light switch if you want. Now, it's not as easy as flipping a light switch, but you can do that that light switch, and um, and it will make a difference, big difference. Right, because it is cumulative. The aging and whatever you do, yeah. your younger years is cumulative and affects you know your lifespan and the older uh, as you get older, and it starts in your twenties and thirties, as you said earlier. So, right. uh, Doctor Ship, um, we're Pretty much running out of time. Can you give us some closing um, advice for the audience? Yes, I, I go back and use that same term again. Each of us has the power to make this change, and it's up to us to do it. Nobody can do it for us. But guess what? If you do it, you're going to feel so much better that you'll say, "Wow, why didn't I do this before?" Right. So it's basically a habit, uh, ch uh, changing our habits. And maybe even at the primary care level, you know, like you said, if the doctor has more time discussing what are your current habits of lifestyle habits. Absolutely. You know, maybe this year, let's pick one or two that you can change to live a healthier life. Yes, you don't have to do it all at once. You know, don't don't try and overdo it. Uh, find, figure out something you can do and do that and then add another thing on in a few months or whenever and, and just you know, uh, build it up. Don't make it, don't make it impossible. Right. Because, um, you know, it's not a, you know, all at once or nothing. Um, and uh, it's better to, like you said, uh, bring a, a new habit in gradually and get, you know, get into that, whatever it is, if it's walking half an hour a day, whatever it is, or stop eating, um, too many sweets and, um, you know, just make that like, you know, uh, something even you know for the next um, six months or one year to work on, and then gradually bring in the you know some more more good healthy habits. Got it. So thank you very much. Um, we're running out of time, so I'd like to thank you for being on our show today. And um, it's been a very um, enlightening um, experience to hear what you have to say about the health delivery system, how we can actually um, have a healthier um, nation. If we um, actually give the primary care, uh, the, the, the starting point doctors, more uh, time to work with each patient, or that could actually drive costs down for the whole healthcare system, and how we can have a healthier world. Yeah, I, you got it. That's it exactly. So thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. That's our show for, for today, and I hope everybody had a, a very uh, good time uh, listening to the show, and stay tuned for our next show in a couple more weeks, and um, please, uh, if you have any comments or suggestions, send them to Eileen at TheBalancedMillionaire.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning into The Balanced Millionaire with your host, Eileen Mendel, business consultant, multimedia marketing expert, renowned speaker and author. Connect with Eileen Mendel, The Balanced Millionaire. Increase your confidence, creativity, balance, awareness, direction, motivation, and catapult your business to the next level and beyond.